0: Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. So what do you want to talk about? Hmm? What? You don't know? Anything I want? I can talk about anything I want? (laughs) Yes. Wow. (laughs) A couple of things I (coughs) never understood in the Torah. How many times in the Torah does it say God's eyes? Hashem. How many times? Only twice? Because he has two eyes. <laughs> How many times does it say Yad Hashem? How many times does it say P Hashem? So does he have eyes? Does he have a mouth? Does he have an arm? Yes. No. No. Yes. You Isn't that? I mean, come on. So many times. Dvar <laughs> Hashem. Does he really speak? If you were there, would you hear him? No. no. Like real speak or or mental talk, <laughs> real speech. Okay. Okay. So many people say, and and, and it says in the in the Mefarshim that it is not literal. It's only a muscle. Why do we have such a muscle? To help us understand, like every muscle. But to help us understand what? That he doesn't have an arm or a mouth, and he doesn't really speak, and he. So listen to this example. My da- my granddaughter, was crying because her doll broke. So I sat down and I said, I feel so bad because it must have hurt the doll terribly. So she started to laugh. She says, it didn't hurt. I said, what do you mean it didn't hurt? The arm came off. She said, it's not a real arm. I said, how do you know? She said, it's plastic. She's right. A plastic arm is not a real arm. It looks like an arm, but it's not a real arm. What's a real arm? A real arm has to have a bone and skin with muscle, right? That's a real arm. A plastic arm is just plastic. A bone and skin It's just a bone and skin. It's not a real arm. It looks like an arm. But it's not a real arm. It's just a bone. God has a real arm. A real one. Since we were created in his image, B'Tselem Elokim, that's why we also have something like an arm. But his is the real thing. Ours is just like a doll. So does he really have a mouth? Or we have a real mouth? He has a real one. We have something like it. Does he really speak or we really speak? He said, let there be light, vayihi. You try it. (laughs) Say it. Say it a hundred (laughs) times. Nothing will happen. Because our speech is not the real, his is the real. So who is the mashal and who is the nimshal? We are the example, It's not him. So does he really have an arm? Yes. Is it literal, an arm? Yes. An actual arm? Yes. You mean like mine? <laughs> no because yours is not the real thing. Now it makes a little bit of sense. I call my arm an arm because it's a tiny little example of his real arm. So it's not confusing. It's a little bit helpful. But don't think that his arm is like yours because his arm is the real one. So the Torah is not using words incorrectly, saying he has an arm when he doesn't really. Every word in the Torah is true. So if it says an arm, then it's an arm. Just don't think it's an arm like a doll's arm, because it's a real arm. Then there's another question that really needs... Explaining. What does it mean? Ivdu et Hashem. What does it mean? Anybody know? Serve Hashem. What does serve mean? In English. Who serves? A waiter. A waiter. Uh-huh. a waiter. So, if a waiter comes over to your table and serves you, and you didn't ask for it, he brings you something you didn't ask for, is he serving you? Yeah. Yeah. No. Or is he annoying you? <laughs> Getting on your nerves. Well, you asked for soup and he brought you uh, Kugel. So, excuse me, take this back and bring me some soup. So, no, I'm serving. (laughs) But you're not serving me if you don't bring me what I want. To serve means to do something for another person that the other person needs. If he doesn't need it and you keep serving him, you're annoying. You're a pest. So what does it mean, ivdu es Hashem? Serve him. What does he need? Nothing. Because he's God. What does he need? So if he needs nothing, what are you serving him? So if you put on the tefillin every every day, you're serving him? Hmm? No, he doesn't he, need it. If he doesn't need you to put on the tefillin, how are you serving him? Praising him? Does he need your praise? That's one of the things that really puzzled me for a long, long time. Would he want something he doesn't really need? Should you want things that you don't need? You you should? (laughs) You should want all sorts of stuff that you don't need? And then you get all that stuff you want but don't need. What do you do with it? (laughs) You put it in the basement, in the attic, because you don't need it. Also, if you want it but you don't need it, can you change your mind and say, nah, I don't want it anymore? Yeah, of course, right? Yeah. Is it possible that God will change his mind and say, nah, I don't need your tuum? Yeah. No. Okay. It's not possible? I, he's not going to do that. He's not going to do it. Huh? So Rambam says, one of the Yud Gimel Ikrim is that God will never change it. How do we know? The answer is because it's not something he wants but doesn't need. And you can change your mind. Today I want it, tomorrow I don't want it. But by God there's no such thing. What he wants he needs, what he needs he wants. Whatever he does has to be not maybe. (laughs) At Harsinai, God didn't say, until further notice, put on film. When I lose interest, I'll let you know. (laughs) There's no such thing. It's forever. So here's the problem. If God is really perfect, Why does he care about anything? And does anything really matter? He wants to give? Yeah. In other words, even when you're perfect, you want to give. Why? You're already perfect. See, if I give, if I'm generous, with what I have, I become a better person. God becomes better when He gives. If He's already perfect, why does He have to give? <laughs> so it must be that He does it, L'Shem Shemayim, <laughs> for no reason at all. So let me try I to. Th- I think. Have a little explanation for this. What does it mean? God is perfect. What does perfect mean? He doesn't need anything. (laughs) He doesn't need anything because he's perfect. But what does perfect mean? Not missing anything. Not missing anything. That's very good. God is not missing anything. In other words, he is so perfect that he cannot get any stronger. He can't get any smarter. He can't get any bigger. He can't get any older. He's already, right? So there is no way in which he can make himself bigger or better because he's, he's already perfect. If I don't need anything, would I still find a friend for what? If I was perfect and I don't need anything, why would I want to have a friend? <laughs> to make that person better. But why do I need to do that? I don't. So why would I want a friend? Because huh? I'm bored. See, I thought about it in terms of marriage. If you're healthy and you're smart and you're capable, why do you need to get married? You've got to have kids. You see, there's there's a difference between trying to increase myself or having someone beside myself. So if I really want a friend, it's not because I will become better or smarter as a result. I don't need my friend to make me better. Well, sometimes I do. But then it's not a real friend. Then I'm just using somebody to make myself better. Which is not a bad thing. Because I'm not perfect. But if I was perfect and I really didn't need to increase or improve anything in myself, why would I still want a friend? So here's this important idea. God created the world before there was anything, right? So it can't be that he created the world for me because I didn't exist you didn't exist, nothing existed so he created the world before there was anything <clears throat> and he was already perfect so why did he create the world? this is really like the most important idea in Judaism before God created the world he was Yahid he was the only thing and he was perfect. By creating the world, he is becoming Echad. Hashem Echad. What is the difference between Yachid and Echad? Take a guess. Hmm? <laughs> right, The spelling is different. <laughs> but in the meaning of it, what is the difference between Yachid and Echad? oneness. The difference is yachid means nothing else exists, just me. I am yachid because there's no one else. Echad means we are all together. So yachid means exclusion. Echad means inclusion. So what happened? When God created the world, he was basically saying, I am yachid and I don't like it. I want to be echad. In other words, I don't want to be the only thing. I want someone else also to exist. So he created us. And that's why the Medrash says, Bereshit bara, what does that mean? Bishvil Yisrael. He created the world so that we would exist. And now that we exist, what has been accomplished? Now he is not yachid. Now he is echad. Or to put it in different words. You remember where it says in Bereshit, it says, "Lay hayot adam levado. Yes? What does it mean? Why was he saying this? Why did God say this? Because that's why he created the world. It's not good to be yachid. Even when you're perfect. So when a person thinks, you know, when I become perfect, I'm not going to need anybody. The more perfect I become, the less I need you. Because I'm perfect. That's not the way God is. Because God was perfect and is perfect, that's why he wants someone else besides him so that they can become echad. You hear this? God is actually saying, by creating the world, God is saying, I am not satisfied being me. I also want to have you. Now, somebody asked recently, Isn't it selfish of God to create the whole world so that everybody will serve him? Doesn't that sound a little selfish? Huh? And then he tells us to never be selfish and never be arrogant. Isn't he being selfish and arrogant? Everybody serve me. Everybody praise me. It's the exact opposite. By creating the world, God is showing, I'm not enough. I'm perfect, but that's not good enough. Why? Because it's just me. So what does he do when he creates the world? He creates someone besides him. That's the opposite of arrogance, and that's the opposite of selfishness. I'm already perfect, I don't need any favours from you, and yet I make room for you in my life. Why? So that you'll also exist with me, that I won't be alone. That's why we get married, because to be alone is not the godly way. God was alone and He didn't like it. It's not it's not enough to be yourself, there has to be someone else also. Yes? Uh, if you need someone with him, why do you create a, one, a whole a lot of people and not just one? If you Yes. one, you have someone In that place, you need someone. When yeah. they're with each other. You huh? you saying one person. Just create one person and then Hashem will have someone serve him. That's why it says that Adam was created alone to tell you that even if there was only one other person, it would justify the whole creation. Mm -hmm. So why doesn't he stay that way? Because Adam uh, ate from the wrong tree. (laughs) Every everything by God is huge. So he wants not only one person. He wants one people. Am Yisrael. So the question is, if you need Am Yisrael, why do you have to have non-Jews? You know what it's like? When you get married, it's just you and your wife. Totally private. And yet look what's going on upstairs. Right. A man and a woman are getting married and the whole town is here. Who invited everybody? Only two people are getting married. What everybody else doing here? Uh They came to celebrate. For some reason, in order for the marriage to be perfect, the whole community has to celebrate. Even though they're not getting married. So the same way, the relationship that we have with Hashem is like a marriage. All the other nations are like the guests at the wedding. So, until now, <laughs> can you imagine if all the guests upstairs are jealous? Mm-hmm. They're jealous. They want to get married to this Kala or this Chatan. Imagine how nasty that would be. Everybody making comments like, yeah, what are you marrying him for? What do you think? He's so special? I know. Oh, no, he's not so good. That's anti Semitism. Anti Semitism has been around forever because they're like guests at our wedding (laughs) and they're all jealous. What's going to happen when Mashiach comes? They're going to become intelligent. You come to somebody's wedding, you don't come to be jealous you celebrate that they are having a special relationship. That's what's going to happen when Mashiach comes. Instead of being anti-Semitic, they will become guests at our wedding and they will be happy for us that we have this special relationship with Hashem and they will bring presents like the people upstairs are doing and they will actually be complimented that they were invited to such a special event. They, they what, could. What They're wedding? not going to. They're not going to. Only certain people are meant to convert, otherwise, they can't. Huh? What about their wedding? Their wedding. Yeah, not with Hashem. <laughs> right? They know that we have a special relationship with Hashem. Until now they've been jealous. Now they're going to become a little more mature and they're going to say, wow, you guys really have something special. Can we come to the party? And if we're invited to the party, that's our honor. A little bit that's happening already. Like Yerushalayim becoming the capital again because people are saying, yes, They have something special. They are the chosen people. Why are we being jealous? So that's what the Navi says. The Navi says that every nation will come to contribute something to build the Beit HaMikdash, like guests coming to a wedding. So what's happening upstairs is the solution to (laughs) anti-Semitism. That's how it's going to all. Resolve itself. So, Ivdu es Hashem means you're doing for him what he needs. What does he need? Tfilin, Shabbat, Kashrut. What does he really need? Mm-hmm. He needs us to be echad with him. How do we become one with him? He keeps Shabbat. We keep it with him. He puts on tefillin. For real, we put on tefillin. That way we are with him. But imagine if you're sitting by the table on Shabbat and you're celebrating Shabbat and your children don't want to come to the table. They're still your children. But they're not echad with you. They're fighting with you. So the mitzvot that God gives us Mm -hmm. is so that we will become echad with him. And that's what he wants. He wants echad. And that's why before we do any mitzvah, we first have to know Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem echad. I think the party is starting. (laughs) Wow, that was a short party. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions? Any answers? No questions? What happens if a person sins and then he dies? What happens to him? So, what happens? Because he sinned. Huh? He has a judgment, and if he's guilty, um, downstairs. Downstairs. In the basement. Huh? is he and not it I, I know why not she why, why not she <laughs> why not she? <laughs> I mean, she is a she I know but, 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 if a is isn't is is, is well, it isn't <laughs> <Yes. clears throat> it it's, it's, I think you're following the uh, the theme. If he wants a relationship, then, it's, then he's not an it anymore. An it doesn't want a relationship. A he and a she need each other. So the question is, should he be a he or a she? So the problem is, not what he is, but what we are. Because it, if, if Hashem is the she, then we have to be the he. That's not good. There was a big debate between um, some famous, famous rabbi and the uh, Christians back in the olden days. And um, the Christian asked the rabbi, how come in your, in your Torah, God is so punishing. He punishes and punishes and he's angry and he's... The answer was brilliant. The rabbi said, it's because we would rather that he does the punishing than that we should do the punishing. By you, your God doesn't punish. So you punish everybody. You make the crusades and you make the inquisitions and you torture people. Better leave it to him. (laughs) Let him be the he, we want to be the she also because he married us, which is the masculine. He came to take us out of Mitzrayim. So what is this thing about Gehenna? Anybody know? What's Gehenna? A A place for bad people. Purgatory. Purgatory. (laughs) That's good. So it's a dry cleaner and, like, you know? it depends on like how the stain on <laughs> your shirt Depends how much cleaning you need. There's a fire, there's hot water, it boils. What, what what's going on over there? How do you boil a a soul? How does a nishama get punished? huh. the only way that a, that a soul can suffer is from shame so imagine and the Shema comes to shamayim and all the other souls are there and and you don't remember how to be a soul because you're used to being a body that's very embarrassing it's like walking into a shul and you don't know when to stand when to sit when to turn around when so what is what is the punishment of the of the sin, the embarrassment when the soul, yeah, when the soul goes back to a world of souls and it doesn't fit in, very embarrassing. What happens when you get embarrassed? You burn. You burn with shame. Right? So Gehenna is not a place. It's like. Heaven goes up, and this will go down. There's no up or down. You have two souls, side by side. One is in heaven because it, because it knows how to be a soul. And the other one, sitting right next to it, is embarrassed. So he's in Gehenna. How long can you be embarrassed? Up to 12 months, maximum. And that's why we say Kaddish for 11 because we don't want to suggest that this guy needed the maximum. <laughs> but on the other hand, maybe he did. <laughs> so, so we say 11 months, not 12. But what is, what is Gehenna? Gehenna simply means you're embarrassed. Heaven means you come back after 80, 90, 100 years on earth, you come back and you remember how to be the neshama. It's as if you never left. That's heaven. So what is the shame, or what is the fear of going to Gehenna? The shame. But the shame for doing a sin, you don't have to wait until you get to Gehenna. If you're embarrassed by your sin, you're already cleaned. You've already burned it off. So we can do tshuva on earth, and then we don't have to go to Gehenna because we were already embarrassed. We were already ashamed. And the shame burns off the sin. So the worst thing is a person who does a sin and he's not ashamed. He has no shame. No busha. That means that he's lost his conscience. He is so insensitive He's not even ashamed. And then something else has to embarrass him in order to get him to get cleaned up. But if we're embarrassed ourselves, we don't have to go to get him. Because we, you know, we put everything into physical. You know? So we say holy is up, unholy is down. We, we don't mean physically up or down. We mean this is higher and this is lower. lower. This is more and this is less, but not physically, not physically. So there is no physical place where you can go uh, visit. <laughs> On visiting day. I don't know if they have visiting day in Gehenna. I think they have. I mean, if you have a relative there, can you go visit? Pretty embarrassing. Bring him some candy. I mean, something. <laughs> of course, you can. You can be sitting right next to him. But you're not embarrassed. And he is. So he's in Gehenna, and You're not. So you can give him a candy. <laughs> in other words, we don't have to wait for Gehenna to clean us. We can clean ourselves. That's the power of tshuva. And that's what this month coming up, the month of Elul, getting ready for Rosh Hashanah, it's a time when we can be embarrassed ourselves by what we did wrong. And we don't want to do it again next year. So we're getting ready for Rosh Hashanah Tovah. A better year than last year because No embarrassment. We don't embarrass ourselves. The embarrassment is just the whole point of of the. Once we get embarrassed, and the whole sin goes away. So I don't need forgiveness. See, Yom Kippur doesn't mean forgiveness. What is the Hebrew word for forgiveness? Mechilah. What is kapara? Yom Kippur. Kapara means clean, cleansed. You first you're forgiven because you regret your sin and you're not going to do it again. That's it, you're forgiven. But now, what about the fact that you did sin? How do you erase that? So in other words, once you are embarrassed and you say you're not going to do it again, God is not angry at you anymore. You're forgiven. But what about the fact that you messed up? Like you threw a baseball through my window and you apologize and I say, fine, I forgive you. Who's going to fix the window? (laughs) You broke the window. So I'm not angry at you, I'm not going to punish you, I'm not going to scream at you, but (laughs) somebody's got to fix the window. So that's Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur fixes the damage that the Avera created. But you can be forgiven anytime. As soon as you stop sinning and you say, I'm sorry, God forgives you. So it really is a cleaning, not a forgiving. Now I want to tell you one more amazing thing. What was Moshe Rabbeinu's biggest uh, mistake? Hitting the rock. Now, Jewish people, look at this. A rock listens and you can't? So here was Moshe's problem. Should I do what makes Hashem look good to Am Yisrael? Or should I do something that will protect Am Yisrael and not make them look bad to Hashem. In other words, a Jewish leader, what is his first obligation, to Hashem or to the people? See, that's why he is called a shepherd. A shepherd has that problem. He's out in the field taking care of the sheep. And there's some danger to the sheep. Should he worry about the sheep, or should he worry about the owner of the sheep? They would both be very good. But the owner expects him to take care of the sheep. That's why he hired him, because he knows that he will be devoted to the sheep. So Moshe felt that he has to stay loyal to the people and therefore end up where they are. So why is it? He spoke, he hit the rock, instead of speaking to the rock, what was the punishment? Can't go into Israel. How does that fit? What does that have to do with anything? Just because it was the thing he wanted most? So God God said, no, that, that what you want most, you're not getting. That's just cruel. So Moshe knew that if when he hits the rock, he is going to be buried together with the people that he is protecting. So he wasn't surprised when Hashem said, you're not going into the land. Of course not. The people are not going and I'm not leaving them here alone. Of course he wanted to go. But with the people, not without the people. Why do you pray? That, that they should all go. So here's a, an amazing thing. The Medrash says that that generation that died in the desert, why did they die in the desert? Because they didn't want to go into Israel. So the Midrash says that all those souls that came out of Egypt and didn't want to go into Eretz Yisrael, They will never go into Eretz Yisroel, they will not uh, have Tchiyat Hametim, and they will not be in Eretz Yisroel ever. Uh, However, since Moshe Rabbeinu is buried with them in the same desert, and he is coming, he will be resurrected, so in his Schut they can also come, which means that by being buried with them, he guarantees that they will make it to Eretz Yisrael. That's called a shepherd. He's not going to go without them, and he will make sure that they will go. So did he do something bad? So when you read in the Torah, God says, because you didn't sanctify my name, you didn't make a Kiddush Hashem by by the rock, that's why you're not going into Israel. Do you think he was saying that in an angry voice or in a complimentary voice? (laughs) He doesn't have a voice. A real voice. So that is the real test of a tzaddik. He didn't sin, he didn't get frustrated, he didn't forget. He knew that he was not going to go into Eretz Yisrael but he didn't want to go without the people that he took out of Mitzrayim. One more thing. You read the Haggadah on Pesach? The whole story of Yetziat Mitzrayim and Moshe is not mentioned? Did you notice that? You're telling the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim, the plagues and everything else? And there's no mention of Moshe? Hang on a second. I want to suggest something. There is a movie, a documentary. It's called Patterns of Evidence. Patterns of Evidence. You can see it on on Netflix. It is the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim with all the physical evidence, archaeological evidence, historical evidence. It was made by a non-Jew, so it's a little... doesn't, doesn't taste Jewish, but it's all correct and, and, and kosher. There was a rabbi, a conservative rabbi, years ago, who made a statement just before Pesach. He said, you know, we were never slaves in Egypt. The whole story is not true. There's no evidence. So in this movie, they interview this rabbi, and they ask him, you don't think we were actually slaves in Mitzrayim and came out and the plagues and all that? And he says, no, there's no evidence. That's at the beginning of the movie. The movie is two hours long. The rest of the movie is evidence. (laughs) So listen to what they found, This is amazing. I'm in the movie, by the way, so so you can What's it called? patterns of evidence this is what they found they found the city of Goshen eh? where, did the, where did the Jews live in? In, Goshen. In, Goshen. in Goshen they dug up the city it was not easy because when they dug they found the city and it was Roman a city the Romans built So some people gave up. Other people said, no, 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 we've got to find it. Under the Roman city, they found the city of Goshen. What did they find? An entire city where the architecture, the style of buildings, is not Egyptian at all. It's Semitic. They don't want to say Jewish. It's Semitic. In other words, from Syria. Huh? Yeah. What, is, what kind of city is it? It had the biggest population of any city in, in Egypt at the time. Huh? In this city, which was a farming city because there were animals buried all over, they found a palace which didn't fit. But there's a palace. In the yard of the palace, there are 12 burial sites, 12 graves. One of the 12 graves is a pyramid. A pyramid was a burial site for royalty, for somebody very high in... 12. Why 12? And one of them is a pyramid. Now in front of the pyramid there's a little square building called a chapel. When they went into the chapel, when they dug it all up, they found a statue. A huge statue of a man sitting on a, on a throne. The bigger the statue in, in Egyptian law, the bigger the statue, the more important the person. This statue is like two and a half times n- normal size. Listen to this. First of all, the skin on this statue is not Egyptian, it's pink. The hair is red. Now we know Yosef was a redhead. He had red hair or blonde hair. The hair cut was short all the way around, not like Egyptian. And he was wearing, in the statue, he's wearing not a royal uniform. He's wearing a robe with stripes and many colors. So he interviews the professor who was, Who doesn't believe in the Torah. He doesn't believe in anything. And he says to the professor, is this Joseph? And the professor says, if it's not Joseph, it's the biggest coincidence in the world, because there was only one royal non-Egyptian character in all of Egyptian history, and that was Joseph. So now listen to what we found. First of all, we never knew that he was a redhead. Now we know. And secondly, how did they know that he wore a coat with many colors? What happened to that coat? And where is it? Where did it end up? Yes. They tore it and they dipped it in blood and they gave it to Yaakov. How did the Egyptians know to make a statue with? They didn't make it. Huh? Brothers Brothers made it. Yosef died first. The brothers were alive. They told him. No, but this is a statue of him when he first became the the prime minister. He's still young. All of a sudden, if if all this is correct, when Yaakov told Yosef that he should wear a coat with many colors, it wasn't just a birthday gift. He was telling him that because of who he is and how he serves Hashem, he should wear this kind of a coat. So when he came to Egypt and he had the authority, he made himself another coat like that because that's what his father told him to wear. That's amazing. Mitzvah's Ha'av. His father told him that's what he wore. Hmm. One other thing that they found. And this is really mind-blowing. They found that the entire population of the city disappeared overnight for no reason. So wait a minute. How do you know that they left for no reason? Well, here's how it works. When a city is abandoned, it's for one of three reasons. Either a war, chased them out, or a plague, Everybody died from a disease. Or hunger. There was no food, so they went to look for food. If there was a war, there should be broken houses, burnt houses. None. If it was a plague, there should be dead bodies all over. None. If it was hunger, this is the main thing, if they left because of hunger, then the f- grain bins and the wine vats should be empty. But they're all full. I wouldn't drink from it, but. It, but <laughs> In the city of, of, of Gaishan. Um, this is just the artifacts no? actual, how they find vats of wine? They dug up the city. The city had wine vats and food and grain bins. And they were still filled? Yes. I mean, not edible, but. And how did they find that? How did they know that the city was <laughs> abandoned overnight? um You can tell there's no decay. It was like, it was just left. Also the food was still there. So here's the amazing thing. Not only did they leave for no particular reason, they didn't bother taking food with them. That, I mean, you can't have better evidence than that. One, They found a little book that was a list of slaves. It was actually in the Brooklyn Museum for a while. It's called the Brooklyn Document or something. It's an ancient Egyptian list of slaves. There are over a hundred names. About 70 of them are Hebrew, not Egyptian names, Hebrew names. So now we have evidence that they were Hebrew slaves. So they told me this before we made the the movie. And they said, look at the names we found. Naphtali, Asher, Shifra, Menachem. I said, whoa, 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 Menachem? That's that's not going to fly, because Menachem is not an ancient name. There was nobody back then named Menachem. So this must be a mistake. You're not reading it right. They said, no, no, this is what it says. Anyway, there happens to be a Midrash. The Midrash says, are you ready for this? <laughs> the Midrash says... Noyach's name was Menachem it was shortened to Noyach so how old is the name Menachem? (laughs) older than Avraham so there were Jews in Egypt whose name was Menachem we didn't know that either well the Medrash of course so take a look at that movie (coughs) there's more, much more stuff it's long and it's a little boring, but it's worth seeing. Anyway, uh, what were we in the talking about? The Haggadah. Why is Moshe not mentioned in the Haggadah? Only because he didn't want to be. He didn't want to be mentioned. He didn't want us to say, you helped us come out of Mitzrayim and where are you now? in a basement, hiding from the Inquisition, in a ghetto? Don't. Don't mention me until Moshiach comes. When you come out of Galut, then tell me that I started the process and I will be very complimented. But to sit in a basement, making a, 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 eating matzah, and say, oh, Ma- Moshe took us out of Mitzrayim, uh, you know, don't embarrass me until you really come out, in other words, until the generation that I took out gets to, gets to come to Israel, then it'll be a compliment. Now it's just a little embarrassing. How do you know that? I don't know that, but it is the only answer that makes any sense. Because who would have the chutzpah to leave Moshe out of the story? Unless he himself asked. Huh? Yes. Yeah. Anyway, um, you should have a good year. Get ready for a new year. It should be the best year you ever had. Do the most good you can. And if you're a little embarrassed because of your sin, okay, then you won't go to Gehenna. (laughs) Thank you, Rabbi.